Well, good morning. Everyone quiet it down really quickly. There we go. Hey, happy to be worshiping you, worshiping with you this morning and working through you through working with you through this text of scripture. We'll be in Titus chapter 3 and the title of our message in, in Titus chapter 3 is the, the profitable Christian life, the, the profitable Christian life. So with that, I'm going to have a word of prayer if you'll accompany me in that. Father, we are thankful to be approaching you this morning. We are thankful to be at your feet, worshiping you and learning from you, from your word. I ask that, Lord, as we pass over this really significant text that's, that's just so deep with meaning, Lord, and so central to our confession of faith, that, Lord, we would leave today praising you and be, being ready for every good work that you would have prepared for us in this world. So I ask that you would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, the title of this message is The Profitable Christian Life. And really, I want to ask the question, what motivates you to do your best in life. And I'm not even talking about just a trying to achieve great things, whether, you know, run a billion dollar company or, or run for president, but what motivates you to do the dishes well or to raise your kids well or to be a good citizen or be a good neighbor. And that's really the, the job of we think many in our world, uh, the, the job of motivators quite often and, and inspirational speakers. And we, we might say, first of all, that, you know, oh, number one, preachers are not motivational speakers. To, to some extent, they are. They're, they're trying to motivate God's people in, this, in a significant direction. And that's kind of what we see in this text. But as much as we might discount, you know, the cheesy kind of motivational speakers, you know, th those YouTubers who speak inspirational things and they say, you can do it, or you think of that like, do you guys remember that viral video of like Shia LaBeouf like from 10 years ago saying you can do it and things like that? Like, are those the things that, that really motivate people? Well, I think we kind of discount motivational speakers and their role maybe a little bit too much, or at least I, I tend to sometimes because it's, as someone who now has two kids, I understand how hard it is to motivate people to do things they don't want to do, or they're, they're not already motivated to do. And it reminded me of really a, a place where General Dwight Eisenhower found himself really on the, the eve of D-Day to motivate his troops to, to basically do their best as they stormed the beaches of Normandy and as they faced German machine guns. And you guys have might have heard basically Eisenhower's what it's called order of the day that he sent to his troops on D-Day. And if you need some motivation, here's, here's something that he was telling them. He said, it, it, the letter starts like this. He says, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you in company 
with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of the Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. He says, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944, and he kind of recaps the, the progress they've made in the war. But he ends by saying, the tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together for victory. I have full confidence in your de courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. I mean, what, what a great appeal to the entire eyes of the world and an appeal to heaven and, and the Lord himself. Yes, to motivate. How do you motivate thousands of troops heading into a battle where they, they don't know the outcome, they know that the Germans are entrenched deeply, I might just adapt this next time I ask the girls to, to clean their room or something like that. But, but really, to, more to the point, what Paul's really asking Titus to do is not to motivate them to, to solve, bring peace around in the world or to, to end a world war, but he's motivating them to be good citizens and to be ready for good works in their life. But in order to motivate them, Paul actually, we might say, he goes overboard in appealing to the very mercies of God himself and the story of salvation in order to drive them on, in order to exhort them to good works. And the reason he's doing this is because really what, what is the, the profitable Christian life? Is the profitable Christian life one sequestered away in a, a monastery meditating on God? No, for the, for the Apostle Paul and really for the, for the church itself, the, the profitable Christian life is for us to live out our faith in outside the walls of this church in addition to inside the walls of this church. It is to have a public faith that brings glory to God and accomplishes God's ends by fulfilling each and every one of the callings of our lives in this world. And so that's Paul's appeal, and he goes into deep theology as, as support and undergirding for this exhortation and this appeal that he's handing to Titus. So let's dive into the text and kind of see what Paul is saying when he's trying to be, he's trying to have Titus be this motivational speaker, if you will. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And here's, ground, here's Paul's grounds for saying this. He's saying, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We'll pause right there. So Paul's vision of the Christian life is not only that we should do good in the world and be, be, that we, we ought to be, but that God's people are uniquely qualified to cause change in the world simply by being what God has created them, or I should say, recreated them to be. But he starts off with, with a rather, we might think, incendiary uh, statement or exhortation. He says, be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient to, and basically what he's saying is to be obedient to local government right here. He's also saying to be ready for every good work. And there's a negative thing, don't do these things, speak evil of no one, and also avoid quarreling. And on the, the flip side, he's saying instead of that, he's saying be gentle and show perfect courtesy, not just to your friends in church, but to all kinds of people. Remember, if you'll remember, Pastor John last week spoke about the, the grace of God appearing to all people bringing salvation to all people. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Not to say that all people are saved, but that the salvation, the proclamation of the gospel is for all people, and it's a demonstration of God's grace and kindness for all people. And so Paul takes that kind of logic and moves along to like, yes, okay, so the grace of God has appeared to train you in righteousness, as we looked at last week, but he's saying now... The, the, the goodness of God has appeared in order for you to be good and to do good in the world. And so, yes, for the, maybe it was something particular for the church on Crete. We know that you know, the, the people on Crete weren't the greatest of people, as we, we've kind of learned over the past few weeks. So, so Paul does start in, in uh, evidently a very deliberate area where he's saying, hey, be submissive to authorities. I wonder if they had authority issues before. And so he starts with, hey, be a good citizen. Be obedient to your governor. Be obedient to your political leaders. And just as it's, it was appropriate to tell the, the citizens of Crete, the Cretans this, I guess it's appropriate for us in our day and where, where we're seeing the, the manifestation of major populist movements from the entire spectrum of our political world, distrusting government or immediately going to civil disobedience or, or just not, not wanting to obey our institutions. And if I, you know, I'm tempted, you know, as a good American to say, well, you know what, the, the submission to, to rulers and authorities follow the state, you know, only as much as, as conscience lets you. And, and sure, yes, there are, there's a biblical calling upon that. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, has the apostles being told, you cannot preach the gospel. And they said, well, we better obey God rather than men. 
And yes, it's true and biblical that we should never follow authorities into any sort of path of disobedience to God. That's not Paul's concern right now. That's not Paul's point. He doesn't go there in this passage, and so we won't spend a lot of time thinking about that, but rather we need to spend our time following Paul's thought on really the, the first commands that are contained within this passage and what they are telling us positively, that yes, Christians in the public sphere should not be known as contentious, as rebellious, as seditious, but we should be model citizens who are adding value, are adding goodness to the public sphere. They are zealous for good works. They are zealous to be kind to one another, to be courteous, and yes, to, to evoke some sort of social change in, in some way. That's really God's calling upon the Christian citizen. So the Christian is not one to, to pick fights, but we be, behaves with courtesy toward all people, especially and even in pluralistic settings as the first century was. But what is Paul's basis for this call upon the lives of those in the church to, to be good toward people all around the world, to be good to all people? Well, it's the confession of faith that, that kind of Paul embeds in here that, that justifies and, and makes a sense of asking people, yes, be obedient to government. Yes, be courteous to one another. Do not speak evil of people. Do not slander people in public. Do not pick fights with people. All these have a basis in the goodness of God that's been demonstrated to us. And because Paul's appeal is not that the church is just, we're just better people, you know, whatever. Paul's actually appeal is that you guys were used to be horrible people, and God was the one who intervened and changed you. And that's why in verse 3 right here, Paul says, for we ourselves, he's not just saying Christians, he's not just saying, you know, you people over there, or just the church, all of us were once foolish. All of us were once disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We passed our days in malice and envy, and we were hated by others, and we hated one another. Paul's appeal to show goodness, to be courteous in this world, begins with the idea and the reality that, yes, the world is a terrible place. I do believe, you know, in many ways the world is getting worse even as we see things get, get better. The world is, is, we might just turn on the TV or just scroll through social media and we're just like, people are, are terrible. But it's always been the case that, that people in the public square are terrible. And Paul's larger point is, hey, you guys all used to be terrible. Like, you, don't, you can't really have any justification for not treating them with courtesy when you all were led astray. You all were foolish. But what changed you? It was not something inside of you. It was not some motivational speaker pulling out what was good in you and motivating you to do better. No, it was an external force beginning with the mind and the heart and the mercies of God. 
and some Bible translations beginning in verse 4, kind of through 7, it's indented kind of as its own section because really Paul goes on and summarizes the story of salvation essentially. In verse 4 we read, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out to us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's worth repeating in full because Paul seems to value you know, this as, as, as a summary of why, not only why we should be good to government, why should we be obedient and courteous to people in general, but why we find ourselves in the state we are in. There are many reasons, as I, as I mentioned, there are many reasons to motivate people to be good, to be good citizens, to do good in the world. There's personal interest. You know, that's usually a, 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 a personal investment, if you will. That, that's usually the angle of a lot of TED Talks that, hey, if you're, you're good and you're strategic, you'll get rich or, you know, you'll be successful financially and things like that. And there, there are even religious reasons that, that other religions might say, where if you're, if you're good, you will earn your way to heaven. You will earn yourself eternal rewards. But these aren't the reason Paul gives for goodness. His reason is this. Do good because you've learned good from God. If the grace of God has changed you, then may the mercies and the loving kindness of God compel you. And let's not reverse that order. Paul is saying that you, as you are today, are not who you used to be. You are changed people. And because you are changed people, you will do good. According to some, especially in religious circles, even Christian circles, you need a better reason to do good than salvation by faith alone, or what the Reformers called sola gratia, that, that we are saved by grace. And the reasoning people usually say is like, don't, don't tell people that they're saved of free grace, that all they need to do is just put their faith in Christ and they have access to heaven. We need, you know, we need higher stakes, we need better motivations. And so they, they attempt to attach, they, they attempt to make salvation a process and they, they, it's a process that you can help along with your own efforts. So they say, okay, well, it's the grace of God that saves you, but there's also, you also have to add some works in order to get you through into heaven, or it's grace and, and, and penance and, and the sacraments like communion or baptism or something like that. But as much as they are wrong, and I will explain why they're wrong, there, there's true, there's truth to the sense that there are people that have experienced the grace of God, but who may still live a life of disobedience, or who may not be following the, the Lord in their, in their daily walks, or who may be divisive and uncourteous and uh, causing issues in, in the public space. We know those Christians who 
say they're, they're believers, but you know, they, they just never go into church. They have no, no fruit in their life. We also could say that there's people who do go to church and, and, and then act like a pagan for, for Monday through, through Saturday. And to all this, the Apostle Paul isn't unaware, insensible, but his concern begins primarily with the spiritual realities of salvation as the basis then for what he has as an ethical appeal. He's answering the question, when the grace of God appeared or was made known to us, what form did it take? And it was God's undeserved transforming power which came out of his good nature. And hear this, it was not that God was lowering his standard, the standard of law still exists, but it was while we were in fraction of God's holiness and God's law that he did save us. Not only washing us right here, uh, as we see in scripture in, in verse 5, not only washing us, but regenerating and renewing us, making us brand new people. And the expense of washing these sins came clean, or, or washing our sins clean, came from a source that is not our own, not because we strive to be better people, Paul emphasizes this, but we were shown mercy, we were forgiven, and we were changed by the act of our triune God. That really, as you can see, it was the Father, it was the Son, and it was the Holy Spirit. It was a Son, it was the Father who, who showed us His tender mercy by sending us the Son. It was the Son who died on a cross on behalf of our sins to wash our sins away and took that punishment. And then it's the Holy Spirit who acts today and regenerates us and who makes us new. And so Paul is saying our motivation is not the watching world who's you know, waiting for us to storm the beaches of Normandy, but our motivation is our, our triune God who made us new and ready and equipped for good works. So that being, what's the end of all this? Is that, so that being justified by his grace in Titus 3.7 right here, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So to confirm, yes, as it pertains to going to heaven, having eternal life, the great advertised promise of the Christian faith, this is wholly a free grace offered to us by Christ. And nothing we do or no work of righteousness more secures our place in heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 puts even more emphasis on this. That in Him, meaning in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, meaning our eternal salvation, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So it's not just secured. Paul tells us elsewhere in Ephesians right there that it's predestined. There is great security in believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus. Now, I'm belaboring this point quite a bit. I'm talking about the, the grace of salvation. Where am I going to talk about works? Well, number one, this is a Christian church, and so I'm going to preach the gospel. That's essentially the gospel, right? So it's, it's on brand. But really, number two, for Paul, don't you see that this is his basis for his ethical appeal. This is his basis for Titus's motivational talks to his congregation. That, yes, 
you should do good in the world, not because it earns you salvation, but because you are new people. Good behavior is now a feature of your life. Good be- you were made to do good things. God's people act out of a new reality, if you will, a new standard. They, they, they start from a new starting point. And so really, there are th- three things that, that I want to demonstrate about good works that, that the grace and the, the mercies of God teaches us. And so by, by grace, we're, we're told by Paul that, that God gives us, number one, that the knowledge for good. The knowledge for good works. That's kind of what we see, that, that there was a time when we did not know better. That we, there was a time in which, in, as Paul says in verse 3, we were foolish and we were disobedient and we were led astray. We were, we were deceived. But because the grace of God has appeared in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, it, it trained us, yes, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We have been taught what is unprofitable in terms, in order for us to repent of those unprofitable things and to switch to unprofitable works because of the grace of God has, because the grace of God has shown us this. It isn't that the, the basis of repentance in many ways that, that people don't understand or, or don't fully realize the direction that they're headed in, and it's, it's an act of ignorance where they, they've sinned in ignorance. And when the grace of God appears, what does it give us? It give us, gives us the knowledge of good. It gives us the knowledge of good things so much that it encourages us to repent of those things we were doing before. And Romans chapter 6, verse 1, verse, as, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, verses 21 through 22, kind of underscores this point. Paul's speaking again. He says, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and we have become what? Slaves to God. The fruit you get by doing then uh, the good things leads to sanctification and it's inevitable end for which God already designated you eternal life. So number one, by grace, God gives us the, the knowledge for good, but not only that, Paul's appeal to do good is the fact that God gives us the desire to do good, the passion to do good. Before, what was our motivation in life? Just think about it. Before you became a Christian, what was your motivation in life? Paul says that our motivation was passions and pleasure. We might think, oh, passions, you know, you follow your heart, you follow your uh, uh, passions in life. That's what the, the Disney movies of old have told us. But really, the Bible also tells us that our passions are corrupt and our passions only serve ourselves. And that our passions are often the cause of wars and strife and conflict because we're selfish people and our selfishness grinds against the rest of the world. Not only that, but we are slaves to pleasure. That what motivates us at the end of the day? Well, I want to I feel good. I want to have a good time. 
those were the things that used to dictate good to us. And that left us without any sort of moral center because we had no other desire out of that. But when the grace of God comes, He gives us the desire. God gives you new desires. God gives you the desire for the good things. God gives you the desire of holiness. And yes, even though we are regenerate, even though we're, God saves us and we're made new inside, we don't always have those desires that are readily apparent to us. They're, they're always fighting and in conflict with our proclivities for sin. But that's why Paul is saying, remind them, remind them of who they are. Yes, they are in, still in sinful bodies. They will still sin. They're going to have conflicting desires but remind them of who they are. Remind them of their regeneration. Remind them that they were made new. These are their new desires. Fan the flames of those desires. Believers are no longer driven by passions in the flesh. God's people are driven by pleasing Him, by goodness. But not only, give, not only does God give us the knowledge for good and the desire for good, but God also gives us the capacity for good. Before, we were overcome with evil. We passed our days, Paul says in verse 3, we passed our days in malice and envy. Which really means that, that we spent our lives in evil and envy. We spent our lives hating other people. That's what woke us up in the morning. That's what cooled our, 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 encouraged us at night, if you will. And it's very, very similar to the language as you, you might read in the book of Genesis at the time of Noah, where, where the earth was so evil that every single desire of the heart was always evil all of the time. And yes, he's saying that's, that's the nature of people who are not saved, that they also hated people and they were hated in return. There was no reference point for good. But God intervened and gave them the desire and the capacity for good. So that do, learning good from God gives us the capacity to be good for, to others. That yes, we were given much grace in order that God would do much good through us. I love what Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 through 28 says. It says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again tomorrow, and I will give it when you have it with you. When God saved you, you have the goodness of God working through you. And that should give you the strength and, yes, the capacity to be that good neighbor to show loving kindness to that difficult person, to not be disobedient or, or frustrated at government, whether it's state taxes or your HOA, to be say, hey, I have the goodness of God in me. I will show courtesy and I will show love. Do I mean by all these things that Christians have a monopoly on good works? Am I discounting the works of big, you know, non-religious, secular organizations? No, I'm, I'm not. But rather, 
Paul is saying that the Christian is, should be a, a good work machine. That because of the basis of our transformation, good works are what we do, like, or just what we do. This is our abundance of life. And really, it's the, authentic, the test of the authenticity of your faith, how you react to God's mercies, how you respond to the goodness of God. I love what Charles Bridges said. He wrote this in a book called The Christian Ministry, and it's in your bulletin. He says, the first desire of the awakened sinner is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Let's wrap up for the rest of the text right here. In Paul's kind of last appeal, now given the abundance of this truth and the, the gravity of this doctrine, if, we might, if, we, if you will, in verse 8 we read, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they, un- are, they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a Christian who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So yes, let's take a pastoral look really quick about what what Paul is asking Timothy to do. Are there cases of Christians acting out of concord with, kind of acting out of accord with the grace of God that's been shown in their life? Are there cases of lack of spiritual discipline? Are there cases of those who've believed in God who maybe have not fully understood what it means that they've been transformed in the inside? Yes, to basically all the above. But that's really why Titus is charged to remind them and to insist on these things. And really just to, to over kind of emphasize, we have, number one, the great doctrine of salvation, which should give us the knowledge by encouraging us of the reality of who we are. We, we are made new. We are transformed people. But then there's the practical role of how this plays out and how we are led to this point right here. And to, to both of these things, it is the grace of God and the, the, the great story of salvation that should always lead us back to these things. That's the driving force upon the insistence of good works from a doctrinal standpoint and from a church-wide standpoint. All of the reality of the truth should drive us to action. And in fact, really, the, from a doctrinal standpoint, the, the two passages of Scripture which talk most clearly about salvation by grace alone are also some of the key passages that talk about the centrality of works in the Christian life and how they play out, especially as they manifest in the life of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10 through 10 has a, is a familiar passage. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So once again, Paul starts with the free grace of God and then doubles down in the exhortation on works. That yes, God is calling each and every one of us for good works. God is calling each and every one of us to be a, a good citizen, to, to be obedient to government, and not only that, to fulfill our callings as members of families, as, as places in, as, as employees at our jobs, as, to fill our roles in ministry as the church. And in fact, the church is designed to be a place. It's designed to be the cradle of good works. It's designed to be the cradle and the, the workshop of sanctification. And that kind of explains Paul's last exhortation, which is deeply, you know, like shocking, if you, if you will, or deeply strong. He's saying, I want you to insist on these things in verse 8, because the saying is trustworthy, that those might everyone who has believed in God, who call themselves a Christian, may be careful to devote themselves to good works, because these things are excellent and profitable for all people. But here's what he's saying to those in the church, specifically, he's talking about church problems, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The church is a, meant to be a hotbed of good works. And when bad works come out, that is simply a sign that that person doesn't really have fruit in their life. And Paul's aim to deal with that sort of person is to warn them, yes, to exhort them, yes, to rebuke them, to motivate them, maybe in a more positive sense. But if they continue on creating division in these things, Paul is saying, hey, look, if they continue on these things, they don't understand the, the salvation. They may not even be a Christian. That's why he calls them self-condemned. And that's the, 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 the gravity of works as a Christian that, that they show whether your faith is authentic and genuine. Because above all things, what we're looking for in good works is the same thing that the doctrine of salvation is designed to do, and the same thing for which all things were created, and that really is the glory of God. If people are doing bad things, It'll come out very quickly in the church, and it'll come out in discipline, and that's the process of sanctification to make God's people more equipped to do good works and to live out their, their lives. But also, if we do good things, if we are obedient to God, that brings nothing short of glory to God himself. And that's where I want to end in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Well, 5 verse 14 says, Jesus speaking, You are the light of the world, and a city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see what? Your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yes, when we talk about authentic 
spirituality. There's a certain extent to which it's personal disciplines, it's private prayer, it's personal devotions. But really, the, the fullness and the profitable spiritual life is public good works, of doing works in the three dimensions that we call this world, of, so that people would see what the church is doing, what individual believers are doing, and they see they were doing what they made to do, what they were made to do, and we can see God working through them as a result. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture which we've just passed over. And Lord, I ask for each and every one of us that we would not pass over it lightly, but that, Lord, we would take it to heart and apply it to each and every one of our lives. That, Lord, if we are believers today, we are not what we used to be. In fact, we are an entire, entirely new creation. And I ask for each and every one of us that we would have the desire that we would stoke that desire even more and more in our, our own hearts to follow you, to do the good things that you have for us in this world. And that, Lord, even if it's the smallest thing that it matters to you, it brings you glory. And, Lord, it's profitable for each and every one of us. So we ask that you would be glorified by our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to say in closing that I will be available at the back for any questions or for needed prayer, so do take advantage of that.